This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Defined by grace, 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 community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We've been moving through uh, this Sermon on the Mount. We've been going through it now for the better part of a month and a half or, or, or two, and just walking through what it really means to be a part of God's kingdom. If we were to put it another way, what are the characteristics of a disciple? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Really, really basically, what does it really mean to be a Christian? Right? What does it mean to say, I follow Jesus, and uh, Jesus is truly at the root of everything in my life. What does it mean? So we walk through the last, the first 12 verses of Matthew 5, and we walk through what's known as the Beatitudes, these blessings, what it means to be blessed by God. What does it mean to actually uh, follow Jesus in such a way that there's a real blessing on our lives? Why would those things be blessings for us? We walked through all of that, right? What it means to uh, uh, be humble, what it means to acknowledge our spiritual brokenness, what it means to mourn that brokenness, what it means to seek after righteousness, to hunger and thirst after righteousness, what it means uh, to be a peacemaker. We've walked through so many different aspects, and they all, as we said, build one over the other. And at the end of all of that, remember, keep in mind what's happening here. Jesus is on this this mountainside, hilly area, and he's uh, sitting there or standing there preaching this first sermon to all of these people. And I've been to Israel, and there are a number of places that people suspect that this sermon was preached. They, They suspect a few different areas. All I know is all of the suspicions, regardless of where they are, they are all incredibly picturesque, beautiful areas. You stand there and you can see from any of the hills that they think this sermon was preached from. You can see cities and homes and fields and you just see this beautiful picture out of a painting. And you imagine Jesus looking out, couldn't have been more than 200 people tops, maybe 100 to 200 people. And he's standing there and he's preaching to these people, looking, overlooking Jerusalem and different uh, communities and little villages and little neighborhoods. And he sees all of that. And all of the beautiful things around them pale in comparison to the beauty of the kingdom that he's describing. And it's interesting because so many of the things he says on the surface would not appear to be beautiful. That's why they call this the upside down nature of the kingdom of Jesus. It doesn't feel beautiful to acknowledge all the ways you ain't beautiful. It doesn't feel beautiful to be in a place of mourning because we always think that Things are supposed to be good. If if God is in it, I'm supposed to always feel good. So why would that ever bring a blessing? And so we've walked through all of these things. And then uh, eventually he gets to the part of the scripture where he says, by the way, all of these things that you're doing, it will bring persecution when you do them. And you still need to understand as long as you're being persecuted for my sake, for righteousness sake, then don't be surprised. You'll be blessed. Somehow there's a blessing in that. Again, Conventional wisdom says that makes no sense. And Jesus is turning that upside down and showing you there's actually a blessing in all of this. So with all of that said, he's just laid out 
This is the ethos of the kingdom. This is the characteristic of anybody that follows Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. All of that gets laid out. Then Jesus takes it to another level. In our passage today, Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. So keep in mind, please don't toss out everything that we've talked about over the last two months, because they all tie in here. All of those things are supposed to be held, because if all of those things are true, and all of those things are true of us, then here's what Jesus says is also true of us. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt shall lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a few things about this passage. You know, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, we've heard this quoted. I remember my, my, my kids all learned this, memorized this when they were young. And this was a, a really great verse for, to remember, like not just what we do, but why we do it. But there are things about this passage that we might, we might miss. I know that as I studied it again, there were several things I realized that I missed. But there's a few observations of the text that are very obvious here. One thing that, that you might notice is Jesus presupposes that there's darkness in the world. He just states it, right? He presupposes darkness and decay. I think it's really important that we start here because many times people will think, well, you know, the world is basically good and people just mess it all up. That's a pretty common way that people like to think, right? Things are generally good. Uh, people just kind of mess it up. And the truth of the matter is that it's almost a chicken and egg conversation, but at the end of the day, the world itself is in a state of decay. It's always been that way. There's always been a degree to which the world is in a state of moral decay. Now, we can talk about, the question is how we define that, right? Depending on whatever our pet peeves are, we're like, there's evidence of moral decay. If you, you know, if you're, uh, depending on what your kind of, your pet issue is, that's going to be your proof that the world is in decay. But nonetheless, we would all agree there are aspects of culture, aspects of human nature, aspects of the way the world works that we would say, that's not the way it should be. I think that we all would agree. There are things about the world that when we just look at it honestly, things shouldn't work that way. The world is in a state of decay. And Jesus starts with that 2,000 years ago, letting us know. He's, he's, he's making sure we understand that as Christians, our job then, we're going to dig into this, is to enter into the things that we would look at as decay and corruption, as well as things we would look at as darkness. Now, why is this important? Because, depending again on your church background, it has often been taught Things are bad, dirty, evil, avoid it, run away from it, create your own little commune over here and be a good Christian over here. Create your, your kind of bubbled in community or some type of gated community where the saved and sanctified folk are. We're not like those folks over there. We're holy over here. Because when we do that, then we know 
I'm on God's side. Y'all over there are on the devil heathen side, but I'm on God's side. And we feel good about that. And yet that is not at all what Jesus commands, does he? He doesn't say isolate and evade and create your own little world separate from where the rest of the world is. As a matter of fact, there were groups of people who did just that. One of the groups of people that helped ensure that the, you know, if you, if you know a little bit about the history of, of the scriptures, so many people who were people of faith were illiterate. There weren't a lot of people that could read. You had groups of people then who were responsible for constantly translating the text and constantly making sure that things were recorded accurately. There was a specific group of people, these scribes, who had memorized the text so perfectly that they knew numerically where every character needed to be. They had a very specific task, and they held that very tightly. They were known as the Essenes. They were part of this Qumran community, the same community from which the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And many people attribute that to the fact that this group of people, they saw, what they did was they saw that Jerusalem was wicked and evil, and so they just escaped all of it, created their own little commune in this little area, and just said, we're just going to memorize and keep counting numbers and make sure we got the text right. And in some ways, praise God, we got text there, but as far as their actual impact in community, little to none. But they probably looked at this. As a matter of fact, they called themselves the sons of light. But they take a lot of criticism because they had no impact whatsoever in the actual community. They just kind of almost absconded and, and absolved themselves from any responsibility to be in the culture and actually have impact there but probably felt really good about themselves going, but we holy over here, aren't we? This is not what Jesus calls us to, but this is how churches often function. Am I wrong? So often, churches and, and people of faith will go, well, we don't like what's happening over there, or we disagree with what's happening over there, so we're not even going to engage with y'all anymore. We've made our own. And that's, this is how we're, we, it's almost like we create, what was that, uh, there was a, man, there was like a, a theme park, what was it called, like Godland or Jesus Land or there was, anybody remember that? It's in Tennessee, yeah, there's one in Tennessee, and there's one in Orlando too. There's like, so anyway, it's almost like Jesus Disney World version, like it's like something like that. And, and the idea is like, we're going to create these, these, these environments where we're not going to be wicked and corrupt like those places over there. We create our separate stuff over here. And then we do that in our lives, create a world where I don't even have to engage with things over here. I don't have to engage with the things of, quote unquote, the world because they're so wicked. I was talking to my nephews about this uh, earlier today, and uh, they've got someone in their neighborhood who uh, loves to brag about how holy they are because they homeschool and other kids don't. Now, trust me, this is not a knock against homeschoolers. Please don't send me an email and be like, you hate homeschoolers. That's not true. But there's this idea that, hey, what we do over here is so much more holy because we're keeping ourselves clean from the stuff that people have to deal with over there. We're so much more closer to God because we do it this way when other folks do it wrong, the wrong way. See, this is not what Jesus calls us to, but this is how believers so often have been taught to function. Please don't hear me say there's not, there is a place for wisdom and there's a place for identifying areas that can be damaging 
that can be toxic, that can be unholy, and then you begin to be impacted in such a way where you are not impactful for the kingdom any longer. That's vitally important too. But to use that as just, that's the standard. If this over here, if people aren't in the same position that I'm at, I need to move and find only groups of people that are exactly where I am. Jesus never calls disciples to pursue that kind of safe life. Do you understand that? Jesus never calls his disciples to pursue that kind of safety. He calls disciples to have an impact, an impact, not in isolation, not in separation, but involvement with the very world that may be dark and decaying. Actual interaction and connection. So Jesus makes these two declarations in order to prove that. To make that case, he makes these two declarations. He says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. I like that he doesn't just say, hey, be salt. He doesn't just say, be light. He's saying, if you are truly one of mine, if you truly follow me, if you truly believe in me, if the life and eventually death and resurrection of Jesus has done the work that you claim that it does, then you are light and you are salt. It's not something you aspire to be. It's something that's declared over you. So there are times then when there are things that are not salty. We'll talk about that, about that really means when things don't look like salt in our lives or light in our lives. It's not a matter of let me go figure out how to be this. No, let me figure out what it is about Jesus I'm overlooking or ignoring so that more of Jesus can be abundant in my own life. It's not more lists and more tasks you need. It's more Jesus that you need. So when you look at what Jesus says here, he not only says that you are the salt of the world, you are the light of the world. He shares the dangers then in light of our new identity. Keep in mind, Matthew here is not recording this just for other Jews. This isn't just about Israel. Matthew's gospel is for the Gentiles, for the world. It's not just the Jews that are in Israel. So let's think about that. How would people have understood? We say this all the time. If you're new with us or you're watching with us, please understand. We don't just do the whole, here's the text. What does it mean for me? What did this mean for the people who were listening? What did salt mean to them? And it's important because when you think about salt, we think about salt in terms of seasoning. I don't want to start no wars in here. Just people season differently. That's all I'm saying. Sometimes it's bland for Jesus. Sometimes it's spicy for Jesus. But either way, God gets praise. I'm not even going to start no problems. All right. So, so usually for a lot of us, when we think about salt, we think about seasoning and that's it. And it makes sense because we are in a world now where we don't have to think about it any other way. But in the ancient world, Salt had a very different application. Salt was needed for something far more than just seasoning. It was used for seasoning. I like to believe that lemon pepper is God's special seasoning, but that's a different, that's a different talk. Amen and amen. But, but at the, during that time, what salt meant was something so different than what it means for us now. There are phrases right now that shows, if you think about the way that salt was used in the, in the ancient world, there are so many phrases we have that help us get a little bit of an idea as to just how important salt was. 
There are scholars that say that in the ancient world, salt made the world go round. As a matter of fact, some historians point out that salt was used as a form of currency in many countries. Some have written about Roman soldiers who would be paid, instead of being paid in denarii or in some other form of currency, they would get paid in bags of salt. You might go, why would you do that? Like, well, just give them money, let them go buy salt. You see, salt was so vital. Y'all realize that back then, they didn't have refrigeration. You see, if you caught and killed an animal and you were going to use it and to make food, you had a few hours. And then after that, decay would set in. Disease would set in. Some of the bacteria that would be in the meat that normally you, it would be killed as you eat it, that bacteria sits and grows and spreads through the moisture that's in the meat. So at some point, people got the idea and realized, if I put enough salt and massage enough salt in the meat, it will slow down the rate of decay. They call it curing the meat. If we really wanted to preach, talk about Jesus got the cure, we could go there. You see, in order for meat, for the decay to be slowed down, salt has to be massaged into it. And when the salt massages, it doesn't mean that the meat just stays perfect forever. It just means it lasts a lot longer. When Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, he's saying it's our job to work as agents that slow and mitigate the effects of decay and corruption in the world. So any place where we see evidence of decay and corruption in any aspect, that's the role of the believer to step in and go, it's my job to be salt here. It's not my job to go, that's corrupt. I'm going to go into the vegan world. Nothing wrong with vegans, I promise. I'm just saying, we got to care about the meat. I like to make jokes, but I'm not going to make them here. We got to care about the meat. And so in that case, our job then should be Lord, first, give me eyes to be able to be aware of the places where decay and corruption is. And then let me be an agent here, like be right here, be present, not remove, not isolate, and be in a place where I can be a part. I'm not the cure, but I know the cure. So I will be the curing salt for the decaying meat. That's really what Jesus is saying here. And people then would have understood it because salt, salt was so valuable that not only would people be paid in salt, but if you think about what you make in a year and you talk about when you're getting ready to negotiate what you're going to make in a year, what are they talking about? How much you're going to make for your salary? You know, the root word of salary is the Latin word sal for salt. You see, salt has always been the lifeblood. It's, it was so valuable. And that's the reason why Jesus chose out of all the metaphors he could have chosen. He chooses salt because he knew they would understand what it meant. So salt, used as a preservative that prevents decay, stopping that bacteria and stopping all of the things that corrupt. And there are, there are several. There are at least 11 uses of salt. This is likely the biggest reason why Jesus brought it up. But you'll hear other sermons that will bring up like salt adds flavor. And we're supposed to be the flavor in our community. And that's cute. And that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. Just ensure it's very dangerous if sometimes you can put, you ever put uh, seasoning on bad meat? That's not going to do any good. It might be tangy and still make you sick. It might give you a little bit of a little bit of ow and a little bit of zing, and then you'll still end up having to be throwing up. You, you can't just go, I just want to be flavoring and that's it. 
It's not enough to be flavoring if the meat is bad. It's important that we're like, what area of curing needs to happen? Lord, give me wisdom to step into that. But salt is useful. You can use it for flavoring. Salt oftentimes causes thirst. And so people will often bring up the fact that if things are salty enough, it will make people desire water. And so there's some applications there, but I don't want to get lost in those because I don't think that's the biggest point that Jesus is getting across. But what I do believe, and I think we see this throughout Scripture, this isn't just here, I think this is very consistent with how God has always operated. Let's go back to Jeremiah. If you remember the story of Jeremiah, you know, Jeremiah is often called the the weeping prophet, the wailing prophet, largely because a lot of the things that he's bringing to the uh, children of Israel are complaints uh, from God because of all the ways that they have violated God's heart and violated God's word. By the way, just as a quick aside, it is super popular for people to just be like, I'm a prophet, I'm a prophet. You do realize that the majority of prophets in the Bible didn't give a lot of good news. But for whatever reason now, a prophet is just somebody who just tells you what you want to hear and you feel so good and bless God, I heard about, that's not necessarily most of the prophets in the Bible. So that's just my little, yeah, soapbox. But here, Jeremiah, functioning like most of the prophets in the Bible, is basically saying, here are all the ways that you guys are violating God's heart. And here are the consequences that are coming. You realize it is not fun to be the person who brings bad news. Like, be careful. Like, Lord, I want to be your prophet. Do you want to just be the person everybody hates? Because that's almost every case for prophets is stuff that nobody, people don't want to see. Oh, you coming? We got bad news coming. But Jeremiah comes and he brings these messages to the children of Israel. And if you, were, if you recall, there had been multiple exiles, at least two exiles that had occurred where the Jews had been captive, uh, held captive by the Babylonians and taken away into slavery and forced over centuries, forced into these new communities, forced to live there, forced to function there, forced to uh, find a way to, to subsist there. Now, if you are those Jews who have been captured and taken into exile, what are you likely hoping for and thinking? You want liberation. You want out. This idea of a Messiah we keep hearing about, I'm wanting him to come and free us. The one thing I don't want to do is go where anywhere near my captors. I don't want to deal with them. I don't want to function with them. If there's any way for me to just create my own little kind of uh, um, uh, area or almost like gated community or enclave, I will do that, but I don't want to be with them. But look at what God tells the Israelites through Jeremiah. He says, this is so, this just would not be something most of us would do. He doesn't tell them, hey, listen, I want y'all to form a militia. I want you to get some, get, gather some arms, and I want you to start an insurrection. Okay, don't even take that anywhere else. But he doesn't do that. What he does say, he does say instead, don't try to do all these things against these wicked Babylonians. Instead, he says, go and build houses. Go and plant vineyards. Go and marry and have children and labor for the benefit of the city. Not only that, Seek the city's welfare, because in the city's welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, can you just think about just how crazy that had to sound? Wait, God, the, the, but, but, what they, but what they did, 
Like, it's been a couple centuries at least, and, and we've not seen any signs that anything is changing. What do you mean go and just commiserate like things are good and normal? And ultimately, what we're seeing here is this principle that no matter where you are, your job is to be salt. Your job is to still engage. Now, all of that happens contextually, right? So please don't, to the degree that we can make changes structurally, which they did not have then, so don't confuse that and go, well, you know, there's no reason to speak out against things and protest. The, 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 the believers didn't do that. Well, that wasn't a freedom that they had. We do. So don't confuse that. But do understand that our job is never to just pull away and start our own little thing. Our job is to engage. Our job is to be salt. Our job is to look for what the cure looks like. So you see this, this picture that Jesus shows, and he uh, basically then says, be careful not to lose your saltiness. Now, I know we got at least one chemist in the room, and any chemist is going to tell you, salt, they don't, it doesn't lose its saltiness. I've seen several people write, like, this is ridiculous. Why would people think? Can I just say this really quick? Please be careful about trying to read the Bible like a science book. Because that's not at all the way ancient writing ever worked. It wasn't meant for you to understand this in terms of, well, scientifically, that's not, that's not at all what this is meant to do. It's meant to connote and to convey something about God's heart. And so the imaginations of the people at the time would have easily understood this. And I go, tisk, tisk, we know that that's not how sediments work. Please, y'all. It's weird because we follow these rules with any other book that we read, but for several reasons of the Bible, we just violate these rules all the time. But yes, there's no question, salt, sodium chloride is one of the most stable compounds on the planet. And so this isn't meant to be a chemistry lesson. We see today salt in its very purified form. When you go buy iodized salt and table salt, when you buy that or Himalayan rock salt, I like Himalayan salt, you buy any of that stuff, you and many times you're buying very purified forms of this salt. But the ancients, they didn't have salt that way. That wasn't how salt uh, worked. If you were working salt mines and salt marshes, people would go to the salt mar marsh and they would try to mine away and chip away to grab salt. And guess what? The salt that you would get from a salt marsh, it had attached to it all types of impurities. So you had salt, but you also had tons of impurities that would attach themselves to the salt. So the salt would therefore be so inundated with other impurities that it became useless as salt. Do you see what Jesus is saying? This is what he means when he says, be in the world, but not of the world. You can be in the places where there's decay and in the places where there's darkness, but make sure that the decay and the darkness doesn't change your composition because you no longer will have any flavor. Y'all, this is, this is big. Because that means all the things that we just talked about, all these beatitudes, all these attributes of what it means to follow Jesus, if we start to let outer things begin to challenge or change or, or, or uh, yeah, change the way that we do those things and live those things out, maybe even stop doing those things because, you know, I'm, I'm in this community now and so I, I don't want to ruin this thing over here, so I better not function this way. I better not show uh, a deep concern for this thing here because that's going to cause this problem here. Once you start doing that, you now are becoming that more impurified form, impure form of salt. And ultimately, you would get enough impurities on salt that after a while, 
it no longer was able to do anything in terms of uh, slowing the decay. You get really bad salt, your meat would die just as fast as if you didn't have any salt. You realize that? You can be a believer, be in the community and believe, I'm in this community because I genuinely am just trying to help be a part of the change. And nothing that you're doing makes any degree of change because you're not doing anything. You're just present. And you thought that meant you were being salt. But what if you're just the impure salt? And what if you are increasingly becoming impure? Because everything on the outside just keeps contaminating. You see, don't get it twisted. We love, we, we focus, and we rightly so want to understand Jesus as, and understand him as Lord of grace and mercy and love. But he's also one that cares deeply about our holiness. He cares deeply about our righteousness. He cares deeply about our pursuit of justice. All those things are equally important. And if we give up just one of those things, impurity begins to ensue. And then we become useless. And that's the word he uses here, right? The word that he uses here when he says, uh, when he gets to the point where salt loses its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything. That phrase, no longer good uh, for anything. Some uh, words will call it uh, uh, tasteless. Some versions will call it useless. The word that's actually used in the Greek is foolish. And it's interesting because we, we might say tasteless or useless. Why? Because foolishness is a form of uselessness. If you have nothing to add but folly, there is no use. You, you are no use to the conversation. You ever had to have a really hard conversation, and sometimes people who don't want to have to talk seriously, they mask that with humor. They just want to be the funny man or the funny woman all the time, even in the serious stuff. You realize, just leave the room. You being in this conversation is, is useless right now. There's no value that you're bringing, and really you're taking things away. That's what he means here. You become so tainted by the relationships or the connection or whatever your role is into the community, you're no longer being salt. You're being the one that's being impurified because of it. You're being useless. And that's the word here. And then he says, so useless that the only thing that you're good for is to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And this is really a reference to something that often would happen in the ancient world. Once salt stopped being salty, once salt stopped having that characteristic and it was just useless, they often would use like this wasted kind of form of like in the all completely impure kind of dead salt. They would put that on the ground to help kind of shape out some of the paths that people would travel. So you would just take the leftover stuff that's left over from this used up salt and you would kind of line the ground and some of it would help kill some of the greenery around to make a more smooth path. And so some people have taken that to mean, well, see, we can even be useful even when we're not. And it's like, no, that's not, that's not the point. The point is you're really good for nothing but to just be trampled by people's feet. See, it, it matters that we care about our own flavor. It matters that we care just about how pure this, this love that we claim we have, how pure our devotion is to Christ, what it means, because ultimately this is what Jesus says makes up the people who follow him. Like it's one or the other. You either are salt or you're not. But he doesn't just say we're salt. He then says you are the light of the world. Now, why would he have to point that out? Because he is reminding us yet again. And even on its best day, even on some of our greatest moments in this world, 
so much of the world is still in a very dark place. And this, I am not even just talking about sometimes when these sermons go, this is the time where people love to point out like certain aspects of people's individual moral behavior. And These people over here do that. These people over here do that. That is its own convo. But if you were to just enlarge that and just go, look at how many people around the world are treated like less than human. That's a very common thing. Look at how many people around the world are treated uh, like, like people who are meant to be used to enlarge other people's lives and not to care for themselves. That is just, the, that's the norm when you go to so many different places, including here in this country. So it doesn't take long. You don't have to do a lot of deep excavating to be able to acknowledge just how dark the world is. Now, that's not to say there aren't pockets of light and it's so important and it gives us hope for sure. But please don't get it twisted. Don't go, well, there's some light so I can breathe deep now. At least there's some light over there. The point is that there's darkness. And so everywhere you are, your role is to actually bring light. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be the light of the world? Because we have other verses that describe light for us. We already know uh, Psalm 27, 1, God is light. The Lord is my light. Salvation. Whom should I fear? First John 1, 5, God is light. And in him is there, there is no darkness. Isaiah 42, 6 and Isaiah 49, 6. Uh, he talks about how the Messiah, as he's prophesying, the Messiah is going to be a light to the Gentiles. Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. Then all of, all of a sudden he's talking to his disciples and he goes, in all the ways that I'm the light of the world, guess what? You're the light too. Now keep in mind, he's not saying they are the source light like Jesus is. He's pointing out, you are a derivative light from the light that comes from me. In many ways, you are a, a, a mirror that is reflecting the light outward into the darkness. Reflecting. You understand there's a difference between taking a picture of light and setting on the wall and actually putting an actual strobe light or some kind of light on the wall that's actually emanating light out. Many of us are just content to be a portrait or a picture of light. Hey, you want to know what light looks like? Look at that picture over there. But what light does, the only way you know light is by all of the things it reveals by its light. You don't know that, you don't know that light is there unless you see light piercing into darkness. It doesn't help anything for you to just see a picture because a picture of light doesn't illuminate anything. So when Jesus says, you are the light, he's saying, you are the derivative of my light. That's our role. That's why Paul takes some of these Isaiah passages and he applies it. He applies it to believing Gentiles at the end of the book of Acts. You see him saying things like they are extending the light of Christ. Later, Paul in Ephesians 6 says, uh, Ephesians 5, he refers to believers as sons of light. In Philippians 21, in Philippians 2, he says, we are lights in a crooked and perverse generation. Now, again, we aren't light on our own. We reflect the light that Christ shines into the world. And when we do that, that's when we are that city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Now, during that time, you know that there was a massive temple, Herod's temple. The ruins are still there now. If you ever go to Israel, you see Herod's temple. Now you've got, you know, some of the foundation that's there. But back then, historians say that Herod's temple was massive and it was gold plated all around. So when the sun shined 
on the temple, that sunlight reflected everywhere. You could be miles away and you could see the light shining on the top of that hill that that city sat. You could see the light emanating from Herod's temple. Jesus is using a picture that they all understand. They understand if you are truly following Jesus, there's something about you, something about your values, something about the way that you live that emanates light into places that are dark. And you do this, you are this, not so that people can brag about your light. Y'all, this is, this is vital. See, sometimes within Christian communities, we get to a place where we love to just brag as if our light is the thing. We love to be able to tell everybody, hey, man, the watts that my bulb is working with is bright. Sometimes we even like to be um, the kind of light that really just draws attention. So it's like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the light that emanates off a disco ball. Look at how cool these lights are, y'all. Check me out. Let me post on Facebook just how this holy light looks for y'all. You see, this is not at all what Jesus means, but this is so often how we function. This is how the Pharisees would function. We were talking about this on the drive here. This is how the Pharisees would function. Pray in such a way that everybody would see them. We're going to get to that in a few weeks. He, they would, you realize that sometimes Pharisees would pray, and before they would pray, they would, per, they would pay for people to come and play music and trumpets just to announce Pharisees are praying because we want people to know how holy we are. We want people to know our spiritual resume. We want people to know all of the good things we've done for the Lord. And so if there's a way that I can humble brag about it, I'll find a way to get it out. Because I actually believe that it's my light that does it. I may not say that, but I function in such a way that says, it's about my light. It's about what I've done. And if y'all knew how impressive I was, you would be overblown by my light. And Jesus is really, that's the reason why Jesus makes this point and he gives this warning. He gives this warning in making this observation because he realized, number one, when a city is on a mountain or a hill, it's visible. That's the point, the visibility of it. But not only is your light supposed to be visible to this world, he also says, if you really are living your life the way that you should, don't work in such a way where you hide that light. See, sometimes there are times where we have to shine light on things that are dark, things that are not right, things that are showing real decay, and we've got to speak out on it. Or we've got to at least embrace in such a way and go, I can't, I can't rock with that. I can't go in that direction. That violates the light that emanates in me, that, that, that I'm reflecting. That violates that. I can't, I can't go in that direction. Otherwise, I'm no longer helpful. I'm that person that takes. You realize that back in the day, they didn't have light sockets and even flashlights. They had, they had oil lamps. That was it. They had oil lamps, some big, some small. He's basically saying when you're not living in such a way where you're trying to actually bring light into darkness, you're just like that person that just takes a, takes a, a, a lamp just puts a basket, covers it up, and then just walks in the dark. And not only does he bring up the fact that you're not showing real light, but you're not allowing people, he says, people in the house to see the light. You, you realize your light, your salt, it's not about you. It's not about what you do or how impressive you are or how impressive your resume is. Those things, they matter to the degree that the outcome is People are now turned, their hearts are now turned to glorify God in heaven as a result. 
What am I saying very simply? If what you're doing makes people just want to be like you, you're doing it wrong. If what you're doing, if the way, just be if the way that you typically will try to share your faith or the way that you typically will try to encourage other people is basically to just keep giving examples of what you did, you may mean well, but you keep pointing to your light. You're not really pointing to anything related to who God really is. Because you subjectively, that might have worked for you. That's great. Certain things that you do, hey, as a result of what I know about Jesus, here's what I've done so that it, it could work effectively for me. That's great. That's wonderful. Don't use that as the light for other people, though. That's your application of it. That's great. But get to the deeper part. Here are the attributes of God's heart that move me in such a way that these are the steps that I've taken in order to massage that into my own life. Now, your massage might look very different from mine. It might. And if it does, just make sure that the motivation for it is rooted in God's heart. That's what he means when he says, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and then glorify your Father in heaven. You see, if your light is focused in such a way where it truly is all about Jesus, people can't get caught up and go, man, I want to be like them. Man, I wish I could do what they do. If people, again, that may not be your intent, but if people are doing that, it's our job to go, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. No, it's not about, listen, it's not about what what comes from me. This is just something that worked for me. But it's really important that you understand from a motivational perspective, what is it that moves you to want to do these things? What makes you want to engage? Eventually, we're going to have, we've been talking and we want to get into some series on spiritual disciplines and it's so important. Spiritual disciplines are vitally important. Make sure that you don't think that the spiritual discipline itself is the light. It's the light that makes you want to engage in spiritual disciplines. It's scary when you go, well, if you had the light like I had the light, then you would study every morning at five in the morning like I do. See, that's how Pharisees work. Again, the thing by itself isn't wrong, but it is just the application, how we massage the light in. Just get focused. Use the closed-fisted approach on just the light and let people figure out then and maybe help each other figure out, okay, well, what does the discipline look like for me? This is how I'm wired. This is who I am. These are my passions. This is what I do. What disciplines might work for me? Be very careful not to push you know, when, when, when uh, so, so often, and we used to say this a lot back when we first started, and I think it does apply. As Christians, our job, the one thing that never changes is the message. The message never changes. What it means to love God and love the neighbor, what it means to live a life of holiness, justice, righteousness, grace, peace, mercy, what it means to, to, to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly, those things are messages that do not change. I don't care where the, where the locale is. I don't care who the crowd is. I don't care what time of the year it is. Those, that message does not change. Now, how we massage that in changes based on where you live, based on who you are, based on your makeup. How you massage the message itself, that changes. Your approach to rubbing salt in the meat changes. Don't worship the approach because that's really what we do. And then we start feuding with each other because I I started mistaking the approach for the light. And now because that person doesn't have that approach, they mustn't have the light like I do. And now we've got division and separation even amongst church folk because one group thinks, 
I got it right. I got the light the right way, and they don't. People wanted, and still do, want their works to be seen by men. And so in order for our light to shine properly, if light really is the antithesis of darkness, then the central idea of letting your light shine has to carry the idea of proclaiming and living out truth, putting truth on display for people to see and hear it. It's one of the things I used to get really frustrated when we first planted the famous quote that, that often would be falsely attributed to St. Francis of Assisi and the famous phrase that would say, preach the gospel, use words whenever necessary. And it sounds really cute and it sounds like really well meant, except it was never said. It's just a quote that really has become kind of this apocryphal thing. Uh, St. Francis never said this because ultimately, why is this important? Please hear this because I know people are going to be like, I get why that, uh, that sentiment is there. Because ultimately, there are people who have really made it hard to even want for, for you to want to really try to proclaim truth because people have been so obstinate and so annoying and so rude and so loveless in the way that they communicate the gospel that you almost wish you could just be like, I just don't even want to be grouped in with these horrible people who have not shown love well. And so if I can just love people from a distance or love people with a smile and love people with just being present and just showing them, I hope that can be enough. And ultimately, that's good. We need to be able to do that. But that's not enough. Let me tell you why it's not enough. Because if you are, you're showing the love of Christ in a smile and a hug and these things, please continue to do that. But if it ends there, there's still more in love with you and what you do more than who God is. And so at some point, we say this as a part of the, a function of being a part of this church. When we talk about what it means to be in community, right? We talk about what it means to, to, to have genuine celebration, things that we can celebrate together, things that we love about each other, aspects of who God is that we see around and things that are just fun. We engage and we celebrate together. Everybody likes getting together to celebrate something. Tomorrow, a bunch of people are going to get together to celebrate, right? Independence, 4th of July, all of that. There are a few of us that have some different feelings, but it doesn't matter. There are people that's gathering together. And as a result, people are going to get it and celebrate and awesome, right? But listen, tomorrow's a great example. Honestly, I'm going to go there because ultimately you need to be able to celebrate and still have hard, courageous conversations at the same time. So if you are getting in, we have relationships and friendships with people and we're showing love and all these things are great. At some point, that celebration should move to some type of courageous conversation at some point in time. Pick the topic, pick the issue. At some point, it should move there. You can't have real relationship with anybody if you don't have any of these deeper conversations. Or it's just surface and topic. And listen, some relationships are surface. Just make sure you don't look at those relationships then as you being Jesus. Because ultimately, a topical light isn't a light that's salvific. A topical light is not a light that actually makes some real systemic change on a heart level. It just means, man, at least I wasn't done wrong by that one. And that's important. That's, it's so great that people at least can have a good testimony about not having been hurt by someone who claims to love Jesus. But what Jesus is saying is, if you're being salt and light, then there's an actual curing process that will happen based on the nature of your relationships with people. 
So if someone is in a hard place or people are going through hard times, there's ways in which we can actually speak real truth and love and concern into a situation. And then when conversations go there, how? Like, where does this come from? Why do you feel this? Let me just tell you, for me, this is not about because I'm so clever. This is not because I'm just so enlightened. This is not because I'm just so anointed. None of that. This has more to do with I'm so overwhelmed by the grace and the mercy of God that there is nothing else that would motivate me here other than that. I don't have any other reservoir from which to pull this what you think is really good wisdom. That's not coming from me. Just be careful for the people that you connect with, especially people who love you and are close to you. Ensure that they're not clinging to you more than they cling to Jesus. You cannot be Jesus for anybody. You cannot be Jesus for anybody. So if you're reflecting the light of Jesus, amen. If you're rubbing the salt of God's word and God's heart and God's glory into situations, amen. But if we're doing it to say, hey, be like me, be like me, be like me, be like me, this isn't salt and light. Because here's what's going to happen. What's going to happen is if you function like that, you're going to be real critical of all the ways they're not like you. You're going to point out all the things, well, they didn't do that that way. And, you know, I, when I was a believer at that age, I did this, and you're not really doing that. And, you know, some of the things you're going down that road, it's probably because you didn't do it this way, the way that I, that I would have done it. And so you, you realize that when you do that, you do, you do a couple of things. You're not, really, uh, you're not really getting to the place where you're wanting to exalt the attributes of who God is and then be able to massage that. You're really exalting all the ways that you did it right. And then you get really frustrated or you have critique for the people who don't. So you're not really being salt of the earth. You're just being what people today call salty. He doesn't call you to be salty that way. He calls you to be salt. When you're uh, showing all the great things that you can do for Jesus and you're uh, showing and you want people to really know and see and want people to be aware of all the things that you do and just how much light that comes through, you're not really being light. You're being what people call being lit. You want everybody to just see what's going on and see, hey, yo, look at what I'm doing. Look at how crazy this is. Look how much glory of God is around me, y'all. Don't y'all see? God didn't call you to be lit. He called you to be light. And guess what? The more of God's light that's in you, the less of you gets reflected. It's not about you. So this is what Jesus is saying. If you're a believer, if you're following Jesus, you get out of yourself, you get out of your head. You truly do make it like we're saying. You make it all about Jesus, Jesus being the center of it all. So do we, salt, do, we do salt and light well? Are we salt and light? Do we see areas of decay and corruption and enter into it in order to mitigate or alleviate the spread? Do we encourage others to do the same? Or do we just opine about how, opine about how bad it is and run the other way? Do we seek to speak truth whenever there's a lack of holiness? Do we speak, seek to speak truth whenever there's a lack of justice, a lack of grace, a lack of mercy? Or do we spend more time highlighting the ways we're holy and we're just and we're gracious and we're merciful? If you spend more time demonizing the culture and demonizing the world more than you spend time curing the meat, you spend more time highlighting yourself versus lovingly speaking truth into dark places, then we, according to Jesus, are not salt 
and light. This is the identity of all of God's people. So may God help us not to lose our saltiness and not to hide our lamp under a measuring basket. May God move us into a place where we have just such a deep desire truly for people to know who God is. And so, Lord, help me. Show me all the ways that maybe I'm not salt. Maybe I'm not emanating light. Maybe I'm not being in a place where I can truly say, this is who Jesus is. This is what it means to have the character of Christ. This is what it means to walk as someone who's in that kingdom. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are, you are at the center of it all. We know that even when we are wrong, even when we fail, we realize that all the work that's necessary to bring real redemption, to bring real change, to effectively cure the meat, God, it's only you. Jesus, it's only you. And so, Father, I pray that you would first forgive us Forgive us of all the ways that, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we have indeed made it about us. We've made it about our background. We've made it about our culture. We've made it about our tradition. We've made it about our, uh, the things that we prefer and our preferences. And somehow we've melded that into things that you say, and we think we've got it figured out. God, I pray that you would convict and convince and convert. Change our hearts in these areas, God. God, I pray that we would be in such a way, we would be salt and light in such a way that people would go, I don't understand how this is possible outside of something that's external from us. I pray that this would commend to other people that there's something else at work other than our goodwill and our stick to and even all of our incredible disciplines, I pray that people would know that there's got to be something more. God, I pray that you would not only touch our hands and our feet and all of our endeavors. God, I pray that you would touch our hearts, that you would change our motivations, that the things that make us do what we do, God, I pray that you would change those things. Allow us to ask those questions. Allow us to be able to see with honest eyes, are we truly salt and light? And Father, I thank you so much for being salt for us. I thank you so much for being that light of the world. I'm thankful that even in the midst of what we see around us, we can only see things by your light. God, move us in places where we need to be moved from being the picture on the wall to being an actual light fixture. And God, I pray that this will be done not so that we can say, all right, we got it right. All right, now I'm light and salt. Lord, I pray against that because I pray that we not get to this place of spiritual anxiety, that we feel like it's our job to meet some type of a checklist. But God, I pray that we can rest and go, Lord, you are being glorified. That's where my greatest contentment is. That's where my greatest joy is. May this be about you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise
Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.